But iconic just means recognizable. Macy's is recognizable. J.C. Penney's is recognizable. Sears was recognizable. But those companies aren't relevant anymore. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. Today we talk with Eric Clark. Eric worked in finance for 25 years before he started the Global Brands Initiative. And this is basically an initiative that takes consumer spending as one of the most important drivers for investment returns and then tries to figure out which are the most relevant brands. His performance as a mutual fund manager has been really solid, and we talk a lot about the difference between quantitative and qualitative metrics in order to evaluate investments, and I'm sure you'll find a lot of value out of it. Eric is a smart guy. Enjoy. Let's start off with your definition of a brand. Yeah, it's a, it's a very subjective thing. Um probably why analysts have such a hard time with the with the concept you know it's it's not something you can touch or feel sometimes it's it's more of a feeling and more of an emotion i mean i i think uh bezos he said you know your brand is what people say about you when you're when you leave the room and uh and that's obviously not able to quantify sometimes which makes it uh unique in our industry because everybody likes to quantify things and that's why we we focus a little bit on that intangible assets because that's where we think we have a bit of an edge. So it's, it's, it's what you feel about a company, which makes you loyal, which makes you talk about it. Um, and and those, are, those are things that happen over time. And sometimes it happens organically. And sometimes it happens with massive amount of overt and covert marketing. So somehow when you're walking down the, the aisle in the store, you just happen to reach for one brand over another brand. You're not necessarily sure why sometimes. But you've built in that muscle memory, and and that's you know that's the loyalty that that makes you know a good brand probably a pretty good stock too. So tell us about kind of the brand relevancy score that you've created, and just a little bit of the history around that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just to take a step back and kind of set the stage a little bit. My, you know, I've been in the business twenty five years, and and you know, there's a gazillion strategies out there, value and growth and large and small. And, you know, most of them are very broad based. And so my, my goal was to identify a really relevant and predictable theme that I could anchor my, my own personal portfolio to. And so it was, this was a little bit of a self-serving exercise I did, you know, four years ago or so. And um, that process led me to really identify that consumer spending not only here, but abroad too, global consumer spending was, was probably the largest uh, investable theme um, that I could think of. You know, it's 60% of world GDP is consumer spending. So, you know, it's 72% of the U.S. and that's what, 13 trillion a year and another, 
you know, 30 or so outside. So, so that, that theme is pretty enormous. So the how obviously is important. How can you track consumer spending? And that's by identifying the important industries that are tied to consumer spending and then analyzing the companies or brands in those industries that are kind of driving the whole process. And, and once you kind of do your quantitative work, then there are other companies that all of a sudden say, you know, you, you start to say, well, gosh, that's, that company may not screen very well, but boy, oh boy, is it just the, 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 the leader in that industry from a, from a brand awareness and brand popularity. And so that's when I started to think, you know, there's, there's something more to the analysis that, that, that most people aren't, aren't focused on. And that's the qualitative part of it. So, you know, I, I thought it was important to, you know, the, the goal is to assess those iconic companies, but iconic just means recognizable. Macy's is recognizable. JC Penney's is recognizable. Sears was recognizable, but those companies aren't relevant anymore. So if I, if I can track a really important theme by creating an investable universe, that's, that's kind of the 800 pound gorillas that are winning through our mind and our wallet share uh, as a way to track that important theme and then update that list every year. So I, I maintain the, the relevancy, you know, because sometimes your Sears was a relevant brand 10 years ago. It's just not relevant anymore. So this is a little bit like the Nifty 50, but it's updated every year. And so I, I just thought the goal for, for tracking the theme and building the index was identifying who screens really well from a great brand, but also from a qualitative perspective. So I kind of built this, this quantitative, qualitative um, system that that ranks people in your quantitative scores, you know, your typical Wall Street metrics, your your sales and your sales growth and your free cash flow generation and whether you're a, an efficient operator and you have high ROIs or, you know, you you're you know, all those kind of traditional metrics that everybody focuses on, but then go, you know, go a little deeper in the companies with this qualitative analysis that really digs into some of the things that you can't necessarily find on the balance sheet or in the income statement, you know, whether the, the, the culture of the company is customer obsessed, like an Amazon, or, you know, whether the, the, the company has this culture of innovation that's willing to self-disrupt itself um, and, and not necessarily worry about every quarter's worth of earnings if you have the long-term picture in, you know, in your, in your sites. And, you know, wh whether you have uh, a particular product and service that has global opportunity not just U.S. opportunity, and whether you can um, whether you can resonate with kids as well as my parents. You know, if you can resonate with multiple demographics with enormous global opportunities, and you have good pricing power in your business with a, a visionary management team that sees the future pretty well and has that innovation culture. Uh, I mean, th that's where trillion dollar market caps come from. And so the the goal with that that qualitative part was to really try to identify who, which companies have that, um, you know, the why, if you will, in brand speak. And, and also, you know, who's, who's going to resonate with the, the next generation of consumers, which is millennials. They're obviously larger than the baby boomers. So they're going to have, you know, they're a bit of a wrecking ball that goes through the, the economy as they, as they get older and make more money and save more money and consume the way they consume is different than the way baby boomers did. So it's kind of important to track some of those, those things. And one of the things that, that matters a lot to particularly the younger generation is, 
is that social consciousness and, and whether the company is, it speaks for something and stands for something and whether they're, you know, willing to, to do well by doing right. And, and the, all those things combined give me a bit of a score for the qualitative side. And then I can compare that to the quantitative side and say, wow, is there a disconnect? Maybe you score really well, but your quantitative scores don't. And then I can dig into the why, or, or I find even more importantly, when somebody has a really good qualitative score that maybe doesn't screen really well, that might be a kind of a, a name that's, uh, that warrants a little bit more work where there's, there's kind of an undervalued situation that Wall Street may not maybe appreciate currently. And to me, I like finding those names rather than just the, you know, the Amazons and, and the, you know, the, the bigger companies that everybody knows, the Visas and the MasterCards. They all screen well and they're dominant and you, you, know, you should probably own those too. But I like finding the, the stuff that, that appears to be misunderstood. Maybe that's the value, kind of the value bias in me at my DNA, maybe. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. You mentioned this idea that there's a comp- there's some companies that on the qualitative side they actually are pretty good, but quantitatively they don't screen so well. So maybe we can talk about a specific name just to give us a little bit of context. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, Restoration Hardware, RH, it's funny, most people think of Restoration Hardware and they think of the old restoration hardware that had some unique stuff, but just really wasn't that relevant. And then, you know, they went through their, their private equity moment and, and came out the other side of that with a new CEO who, who is unbelievably visionary. And, and when you look at the score, you know, from a quantitative perspective, you know, RH scores about like a 12 or 15%, pretty low, but from a qualitative perspective, they score about 80%. And some of that 80 are, you know, it would probably be even higher than that in some of the categories that may not even matter to this company. So I looked at that and I thought, gosh, there's, I mean, I I love the RH brand. I, you know, if I look around my house, I have a bunch of RH furniture, but if you, if you kind of go through the, the, the system, if you will, and you think, okay, is the, is that uh, company customer obsessed and, and from a culture perspective, and it really is, I mean, they are, they are, they have a, a clear vision of, of the home furnishings market on the luxury side. And it's not just, you know, the three to $5 million or more house. I mean, they, they, they have great finance terms for the mass market too. So they're, they're creating a very unique store experience, a very unique product group of, uh, you know, group of products for, for end users. And they're constantly listening to customers if you, I mean, to me, the, the, the visionary management is probably the largest um, disconnect between the stock. I mean, the stock can be highly volatile for other reasons, but when you listen to the CEO, they just reported earnings a, a week or two ago. And I mean, it's hard not to get excited about what the Gary has in store for the brand. I mean, he mentions the RH being in the same category as a Louis Vuitton or a Caring or some of those iconic global brands. And, and his goal is to take this model and go global with it. So they have that store experience that's very unique in the category. It's become a, you know, these galleries have become a gathering place um, and, and a common space, which if you think about from the branding perspective, you know, most companies spend a gazillion dollars trying to market to people, but there's, there's really no great way to measure that ROI but you know that when people go into the store, or go up on the rooftop deck or go to the restaurant because they're building this hospitality business, that there is an instant connection with the brand 
that you may or may not think of, you know, off the top of your head that, st- that starts to stick into your brain. And, and, and that's all of a sudden going from a marketing campaign that's, that's tough to monetize to quite possibly the best branding any, uh, of any company I know of. Because as you walk by that store, you're just instantly in, intrigued enough to go in. So he wants to take that, that brand global um, with that same kind of model of, of blending hospitality with home luxury home furnishings. I don't know if you've been to the New York Meatpacking District, uh, the gallery there. I mean, this thing's generating 100 million bucks a year in revenue, and they're gonna they're getting ready to go on a 10 uh, city tour to go out and talk to to companies across the the globe to to kind of take that model and and go elsewhere with it. So the, there's a lot of sex appeal in the model, in the messaging, in the experience. And they're resonating with, you know, the somebody who has a little bit of money that's just out of college that might like one or two things, all the way up to somebody who's got three, you know, vacation homes that wants that, that wants it uh, furnished with some amazing, uh, apparent, you know, uh, furnishings and things. So it, it scores really well across typical brand metrics, but doesn't score very well across across quant metrics. But I suspect if the qualitative is more important, and I think that it is. The the quantitative metrics will start going in that direction, and and so that's an opportunity that we see. Now it's not recession proof, obviously. You know, when the economy slows down, they missed earnings pretty badly and surprised people in December. So there's always that kind of risk with with something in the home furnishings group. But to me, it's it's a brand that's very misunderstood and deeply undervalued relative to the the unique service offering that they, that they have, you know, versus a Williams-Sonoma or a Wayfair or somebody like that. Yeah. So let's talk about assessing the qualitative metrics a little bit more because a lot of people like the quantitative metrics because it's easy to tell if one company has higher net income or higher sales growth, but this qualitative is obviously much more fuzzy. So how do you actually assess whether one company does better qualitatively on, let's say, visionary management? Like, How would you be able to discern whether Restoration Hardware has uh, more visionary management than, say, another company? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a lot of work to be done. I'm a, I'd love to say that I could pull all this stuff in and 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 scrape it, scrape the data and put it into an Excel spreadsheet and have drop down menus. But this is this is old school analysis. This is listening to the conference calls, listening to management, um, reading the annual reports and the 8Ks, spending time on the website, going and doing your channel checks in a store, and talking to the employees. Um, you know, I find it fun because I just I, I'm I'm so, you know, kind of passionate about the concept of the brand that I, that I enjoy this process. And, and so, you know, particularly RH, I mean, when you, if you listen to the conference call a week ago or so, I, I mean, you, you couldn't get off the phone without thinking, God, this, this CEO thinks so different than, than any other CEO in, in this category. I mean, save some, some folks from, from Amazon or something that they have that kind of passion and and they're willing, you know, the CEO has been pretty aggressive about buying back stock. So, you know, he's he's bought back roughly 60% of the shares at about $64 or something, and the stock's at, you know, 113 So that was a pretty strong vision and capital allocation plan um, based on his passion and where he sees things. So there there is a lot of due diligence to be done. 
but but there's opportunity once you do that. And then it all all those things kind of go through this scoring system. You know, your your perfect score is a hundred, and and I just go through each one of these metrics and rank them. And and each one I've I've kind of uh, set a maximum score for each one of the factors because in my opinion, and this is where the subjectivity comes in, some things are more important than others. You know, having a visionary management team is highly important. So that might get a five score on a max versus maybe, you know, whether you are on the, the glass door and LinkedIn top companies to work, um, you know, list or whether, you know, whether you're, um, you know, in, in some of the ESG screens, obviously those are important. Um, it's kind of, kind of the, the way you should run your business, but they may, they may or may not be tied to whether a company, their ultimate performance as a stock and as a company are great. So, you know, if you can identify the things that are probably most important about, you know, becoming a great business, which ultimately becomes a great stock, those are the ones you want to, you want to screen really well for. And I'll just rattle off a couple of the the ones that I really focus on. You know, if you're going to be the most relevant in your, in your category, you need, again, you need that culture of innovation. You need to be, you need to be willing to self-disrupt. You have to offer a differentiated experience um, have some visionary and forward-thinking managers, strong capital allocation decisions, um, you know, have a g- large and global market that you're addressing, being able to touch and appeal to multiple demographics uh, around the world. And, and so, you know, those are the things that will tend to have the highest maximum scores. So if you get those right, you're really going to have a pretty good qualitative score. Great. So I'm also curious about two particular things, maybe downsides of brands, because one thing that comes to mind is this erosion of the importance of brand and maybe like a store. So back in the old days before the Internet, they basically the companies that had the higher highest advertising dollars would get the front shelf space and get the most sales. But now with the Internet, you can compare different products so many different ways and you just go to Amazon and pick the cheapest one. So talk a little bit about your thoughts about this erosion of the brand importance and how these brands that you're talking about are different. Yeah. I mean, I I think a lot of that has to do with categories. You're right. You know, it used to be if you were, you know, particularly from the food perspective, these brands were so dominant and frankly, that's why they probably got all very lazy and, uh, and kind of stopped innovating because they just, you know, Campbell soup just knew that they were, they were dominant, and they had the they had the uh, the important distribution that in places that we all shop, and and so they didn't really focus on the the how we are now thinking about food and wellness and and the ingredients that we have. So you know, from a from a erosion of brand, I think it's about category too. You know, I, I think as consumers now, we all think you know when we're out purchasing, um, you know, if I if I'm going to go get. I don't know, paper towels or, or toilet paper or things like that. Do I, is the brand relevancy really that important? Is, is that brand versus that brand from, from a, you know, one's $2 and 50 cents and one is 99 cents at Costco. That's probably an area that's, let's call it a non-core, like a non-core love uh, category. Um, that's probably an area that I'm okay saving money so I can then continue to spend on the brands where I feel like I'm really getting the differentiated product and the differentiated experience. You know, I, let's compare that with concert tickets, right? If, you know, concert tickets have become super 
expensive, but gosh, you know, our love for music and our favorite brands uh, and, and bands, um, we're, we, we, might, we might not love the fact that we have to spend so much on tickets for the experience, but for that, we're willing to spend, um, whereas some other categories, we're, we're okay analyzing the category and saying, that's an easy place for me to just get the cheapest thing out there. You know, when I go to Whole Foods, I'm just going to, instead of Annie's Organics, I'm going to opt for the 365 brand. It, it's like, you know, 40% cheaper. And I frankly wouldn't know the difference from a taste uh, and from an ingredients perspective. So to me, that's, the, that's where your, your analysis has to begin to in each one of the categories to see, okay, do, does this company do the categories that they play in? Are they in demand or are they kind of commoditized uh, industries where, where people are clearly, you know, able to, to take the, the cheap option rather than pay up for that particular brand if there's real no differentiation. And, and all that does is force companies and brands to get a lot more competitive and to really, figure out, you know, what their value proposition is. And, and at the end of the day, that's a good thing for consumers. And it'll be a good thing for, for the companies that have those differentiated products. And, it, and it'll be a bad thing for the, the companies that just can't figure it out. I mean, Kraft Heinz is a perfect example. They are so disconnected with how people consume food and what, what we want. Um, I'm amazed that these smart private equity folks and the, and the managers at Kraft Heinz, even Warren Buffett, you know, he's got a major stake in that company. And they clearly have lost their way with how consumers are, are consuming, you know, from their food perspective. So would you say that it's a fair assessment that these categories that have been successful in brands are more outward facing? Because paper towels, you know, you have those in your house versus maybe Tesla as a car is very outward facing. Um, so would you say that that is kind of a fair differentiator? Um, yeah, but I mean, if you think about it, 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 it you're you're very popular and valuable to me and, and or in my home, or you're outwardly popular. You know, Tesla obviously is a is an important brand and in, in a in an important growing category. But I, I think you know, if if I look around my house and you know, if I if we if my family were talking, they, they have their favorites for the things that they use every day. And they may or may not be, you know, outwardly facing brands as much, but they're just loyal to things. You know, if you're a, if you're a kid, some of the some of the the top brands within Hasbro are still, you know, a favorite to you. Uh, I, I'm not gonna. I don't think the the Hasbro brand is as relevant as it once was because of gaming and a few other things. But uh, I think it really depends on each category and each company, and and what their value proposition is. Um, so it's hard to just make a blanket statement about about anything. Sure. So as much research as you've done into brands, how what are your thoughts about building a successful brand and how do people do that? How do companies actually build a successful brand? Well, I mean, it used to be um, I, I think it used to be a little it, it's never easy. Let's face it. It's not cheap. And it's not easy to win someone over. Uh, but with social media, it's certainly gotten a lot easier. I mean, there, there are so many brands that are very young that have, that have launched almost exclusively, in some case, completely exclusively through social media that have really resonated with consumers. So, you know, it, I think it was harder in, in the old days. Your brand had to be through advertising, through TV marketing and through, you know, you're in, in local stores and now increasingly, 
you get that social uh, angle to it. And, you know, a, a private brand that I just love from an, an apparel basis is Buck Mason. Great men's apparel. Um, they, they've, they now have two stores. They're going to start adding stores, but they started on the web and they started doing massive amounts of marketing through Instagram and through, um, through, uh, Facebook and, and, and other avenues. So I, I think the, the social media part is, is really kind of a great equalizer. And the biggest brands are now rapidly trying to figure out how to do that, right? They've, they were all these older companies, these legacy brands, they were doing, they were using the same playbook they've used uh, for 20 years and, and, and they lost their way. Procter and Gamble is a great example. Procter and Gamble kind of, you know, has an unbelievable house of brands, but, but they kind of lost a little relevance relevancy and the stock price took a pretty big hit for a while. They got some activist in, investors in there really shook things up, really started to, to, to invigorate and innovate through the social media platforms. And now they're, you know, the stock's back at all time highs. So that those are one of the qualitative factors I look at is their, the, how a brand is, is viewed from a social perspective and how many follows do they have and how much engagement do, do, do they have when they do post something with what frequency do they post? You know, five below is a great example. they they do a lot of stuff on Instagram and five below is a kind of a general merchandise retailer. That's just really resonating with the teen group right now. And, and they do a lot better than a dollar tree or a dollar general uh, through social. Not only do they post more, they have more followers, but they have a lot more engagement. People actually seeing that post reacting to that post. Now, now you know that you're, you're reaching the end user with some of your marketing and, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's just about marketing, about, um, you know, understanding that people receive information in different ways. And so creating that marketing strategy in all the ways that people receive that information and have great products and services with good distribution, um, you know, all, when, when all the stars align, the stock price usually does pretty well. I'm also curious about measuring relevancy over time, because I feel that, just as you looked back and saw the progression of Procter and Gamble, it'd be kind of difficult to measure that while it's going through the transition or a new upstart comes in and starts disrupting them. Like how how do you think about measuring it over time as it's happening? Well, you know, we have we have a little bit of help. Um, the, the brand consulting firms out there, you know, Brand Z is is part of. Um, Millward Brown, which is a big uh, component of WPP, which is in London, one of the largest ad agencies in the world. Interbrands does it, which is part of Omnicom. So brand people have been talking and rating you know, brands and, and tracking all this stuff for years and years and years. In fact, Brand Z puts out their annual top 100 global brands report. Um, they, just, they just came out with it you know, maybe two weeks ago. And the cool thing about them is they, they come out with a top 100 brands um, list, but they also, you know, the report's terrific. If, if anybody ever wants to get involved, just Google brand Z top global, top 100 brands, but they also measure, uh, the performance, you know, here, here's the, the performance of this basket of securities that we have, we believe are the most valuable brands based on all the methodology that they have. And candidly, they do kind of a quantitative qualitative assessment too. 
So we utilize some of their work that's all public, you know, in the public domain. And, and there's a bunch of different brand consulting and brand report, you know, kind of analytical reports that we can draw from that can pull into this quantitative and qualitative report that I that I generate. So some of that is just leaning on the the evidence that that you know enormous organizations uh, who deal with brands on a daily basis are doing every day. Gotcha. And I assume that there's a lot of consumer trends in these reports. So I'm curious about some of the biggest consumer trends that you're seeing right now are. Yeah, I mean, wellness, health and wellness is a big one. Um, athleisure within fashion connected to well, health and wellness. You know, that's why the Lululemons and the Nikes are, and the Adidas are performing so well. Um, you know, some of the big secular themes of, of um, you know, technology becoming part of our lives. That's a, a big theme that's, that's important to track. You know, the, the, one, of the, one of the reasons why I thought this was important to create was because, you know, if you wanted years ago, if you wanted to invest in the consumer theme, you really could only do it through consumer discretionary and staples. But as you know, we spend so much more money and time consuming things that are outside of those categories within technology. And then certainly my parents, you know, that 40% of their discretionary spend is, is healthcare. And so, you know, tracking lifetime spending through these themes to me is, is the most important part of this process. So, you know, video gaming, like where are we consuming, where are we spending our time within media and watching television, watching streaming, listening to music, playing video games, spending money on healthcare, um, home improvement and, and, you know, our, you know, spending money on our, our lives, as well as that experiential thing. I, I think the experiential thing is probably the most important. Um, nobody really talked about that, if, you know, three or four years ago. But now all we hear about is, you know, the, the experience that a company is, is giving us. So even names like a Nordstrom are really, you know, they're kind of turning that model upside down, trying to figure out, A, how to get you to the store and B, how to entertain you while you're there, rather than you just wandering through a store looking at things on the, on the shelf. So, you know, e-commerce obviously is, is enormous. It's 15% of retail and obviously going higher. But, you know, everybody, everybody talks about the, the physical retail experience being dead and physical retail going away. I don't think it's going away. We still love to go out and touch and feel and just kind of go out in our, in our neighborhoods with friends and family. You just, you know, you just have to, you can no longer just have uh, a box that people walk into and browse. You really have to give people a real experience. So um, all of those things, I think, are still important. And, uh, and obviously, that one of the big things that for us, if you're going to track the theme, I, I mean, the Asia opportunity is, is probably even larger than the U.S. opportunity. So understanding how consumers are, 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 are acting and reacting and spending uh, in Asia in particular. And that's a mobile thing. I mean, they're kind of leapfrogging the, 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 the Visa and the MasterCard thing. And they have the WeChat and the Alipay. And, and, and you just go, you go into a store or, or you shop with your mobile phone and you just, you just you know, use an RFID code and you, you purchase a, a product and you can either go pick it up or or, or have it delivered. So, I mean, understanding that that's the way people are consuming will drive you into some of those themes that, that you need to pay attention to. Yeah, that's really good. 
So another thing I think about besides maybe a little bit of erosion of the brand because of the internet is a recession because a lot of this is driven by consumer spending, as you're saying. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on maybe some categories that are more recession proof than others. Yeah, I, you know, you have those typical um, staples, if you will, Um, you know, historically, consumer staples have always been terrific, um, a terrific place to hide when when the economy slows down, because they're more stable, predictable categories. Um, But, you know, I I think you can even broaden things out. Um, You obviously have the food products and the and the household products and, you know, your telecom where you're, you know, you're still going to, even in 08, you still paid your, your uh, cell phone bill. Like, God forbid we should go without our cell phones for a nanosecond. So to, to me, those are categories that are very defensive, but even, you know, again, going back to the tracking of lifetime, lifetime spending, healthcare spending is in particular categories is pretty stable even in difficult times um, where, you know, with an aging society, some of those defensives are, you know, even medical devices and pharma and managed care. I mean, whether we like it or not, we're still going to keep paying our health insurance. So, you know, I kind of look in, in fact, I have a a bit of a a sub segment of the 200 brands that are part of the the brands index, which is my investment universe that I deem uh, as particularly defensive in nature. And most of them are names that you would think would be defensive, but then some of them are are business models that that you know are a little more defensive than you know than the industry might might think. And that you know Starbucks comes to mind. You know ha- having that again that tied to the experience that's important. Um, uh, insurance uh, that's a big category for for consistency. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I mean, you know, some of the technology, I mean, definitely not the cloud names that are that are big B2B brands. Those are obviously really economically sensitive. But, you know, cable, Comcast is, has been historically very defensive. Um, I don't know that Netflix stock will be defensive in a slowdown, but I think Netflix business model will be defensive because the price point is low enough and the, the value is high enough that most people are even in a slowdown, if anything, they might go out less and spend more time watching Netflix, but you wouldn't necessarily, you know, think of Netflix as a, as a defensive stock. But I think the business model, uh, if you separate it from the stock could be fairly defensive in a, in a, in a slowdown. Yeah, I definitely buy that. Um, So also we mentioned earlier about the qualitative quantitative spectrum and what do you think when you get a company who is maybe really good on the quantitative, but not so good on the qualitative, but you really, you really like it. So what I'm basically trying to say, um, which one do you think is more important or is it pretty even? You know, I I really think that, I guess that, I guess that's a double-edged sword, right? I, I think from a quantitative perspective within the market, at least for the last 10 years, right? What's worked the last 10 years? It, growth. It, the, the, one, of the, one of the best back-tested uh, factors is three-year growth. Um, if you have the highest quartile three-year growth rate, um, your stock has absolutely annihilated the S&P. 
So in some ways, people would say, well, the quantitative really is more important because the data is telling you what's already happening. And, and I would say to some, to some degree, that's correct. But, but then you also get these other companies that may not screen really well that are, have been monster performers too. I mean, Costco comes to mind. You know, uh, in some cases, if you, uh, if you have very high sales, very low margins, but you have the ability to raise your prices, giving you great margin expansion, those are things that aren't going to screen really well in some cases, but they have been, if they're in really important categories, um, like a Costco is from a, from a food and merchandise, the stock has been an absolute monster. TJ Maxx is another example. So to me, I, I like to look at them separately and then I create a blended score of each. But, but I, again, I really love the things that, that don't necessarily screen very well from a quant perspective, but that say the quantitative, the, the quantitative data says that the quant stuff might catch up to the quant, to the qualitative. And, and so I, I kind of think that from a brand perspective, from a creativity perspective, it's the qualitative stuff that's more important. And again, that's probably why there are very few strategies out there that are dedicated to the brand's theme because the industry is quantitatively focused, balance sheet, income statement focused, but these companies are more qualitatively focused. And that's probably why there's only a handful of, of, you know, of us out there analyzing the brand stuff. And, you know, just to pat yourself on the back a little bit, most of those strategies have pretty darn good track records. And, and we would argue that it's because you're tied to an important theme and you're identifying the, the most relevant, the most recognizable brands. I mean, uh, Morgan Stanley uh, has a mutual fund called the Morgan Stanley Global Brands Fund. I don't think it's available to, in the U.S. for some reason. The team's based in London. Uh, they have been running this fund since 2000 with a great track record. It's, it tends to be pretty defensive um, all the time. So they tend to make a, most of their gains when, when the market's difficult. But they do a gr- I love reading their stuff. They do a great job talking about the brand relevancy and, and, and things like that. So to me, I, I focus on the qualitative a little bit more and think that is mo- in most cases more valuable because everybody knows what the quantitative data is. And, 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 you know, my job is to put the best players on the team at any given time. And if growth is outperforming, then I'm absolutely going to have a big slug of great growth brands because that's what, that, that's what's winning currently. But I also want to sprinkle in the names where I feel like the, the quantitative stuff isn't really telling the whole story. And, and in some cases, that, that allows me to get some value. It allows me to get some, some international um, it allows me to get some smaller and mid-cap names that, that might not show up in the quantitative screens that, that have been great winners. I mean, Shopify was a great winner. Etsy has been a great winner. You know, some of those kind of what I call new economy brands that are, that are either resonating with consumers or, or, or are empowering other consumer brands to be better companies, which is a Shopify. Definitely. So I thought what you said about how companies focus on the qualitative metrics is really interesting, right? Because I was just thinking if an entrepreneur goes out and starts a company, it's not like they think, you know, one day I really want to have net income margins of 20%. Like <laughs> they're, they're thinking of trying to take over the world and then kind of the financials follow that. So I, I think as investors, yeah, we definitely get too caught up in the quantitative like, oh, you know, Visa's operating margins tick down from 66 to 64. It's like Visa, okay, 
they are forced to care about that now because their investors care about that. But I don't like internally, they're just trying to think of how can we make this company better? Um, so I think that's really interesting. Um, also, just what is your favorite brand? My favorite brand? Wow, that's tough. It usually goes by category. I mean, from from a car perspective, I mean, I have to say that I, uh, from an aspirational perspective, I mean, Ferrari is the sexiest brand. I, I think Ferrari could be the most powerful brand pound for pound. So I love that company. I love, the, I mean, it, it's just, it's just, there's nothing like it. There's no other comp. What company can you say, particularly in the car industry that has those margins, that has that brand loyalty, that has, you know, that kind of pricing power. So, you know, Ferrari comes to mind. I mean, I'm, I'm, I still love Apple. I, 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 we can all probably say that Apple hasn't innovated as much as they should have given their ability to innovate with the cash and the, and the, you know, the team that they have. But I mean, look around your house. I mean, if I just look at my house, I mean, we have three iPhones, three iPads. I'm wearing earbuds today. I have two Mac laptops. We use, I don't use iTunes. I'm, I'm a Spotify guy. Spotify is definitely one of my favorite brands as well. But I mean, I, I think, you know, that brand is great from a restaurant perspective. I absolutely love Shake Shack. Um, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's a better experience. The food quality is better. Um, it was started by a real chef that cares about food and ingredients. Um, and so, you know, I, I tend to be, you know, a little bit of the, you know, what's, uh, what's up and coming versus what, you know, I haven't been to a McDonald's in 25 years. I suspect it probably tastes as good as it did 25 years ago. I just don't, I just don't care for the ingredients. And, and so Shake Shack is a place that I'm willing to spend a little bit more money for a better experience. Um, so, you know, I, I love my Netflix, but I love my Amazon prime now too. And, and, and I cable, I can't stand, we, we cut the cord and I'll literally, I can't believe I waited so long. You know, I think the cable companies are, I mean, talk about poor brand loyalty and poor brand awareness and poor brand, um, you know, kind of, uh, relevancy at this point they're being, they're being out innovated 10 to one. So there, there's plenty of companies out there that are super intriguing. Some of them are expensive. Some of them really aren't in crazy expensive, given how dominant they are around the world. So I just thought of this question because you're talking about the cable companies. But let's say you are just inserted magically as the CMO of a cable company. What are the next steps you take to really elevate the brand? Wow, that's tough because I don't know. The DNA there <laughs> is so legacy thinking that, that I think, you know, Comcast obviously is different because they have an NBC Universal. So they, they know where, where trends are heading. I, I, I just think, uh, I, I think part of the problem with cable that, that keeps them from not really innovating is because they, they have, they're anchored by too much legacy thinking and they're like the cable box. They still get, a pretty decent amount of revenue from this goofy cable box. So, so they're going to have to be willing to take a hit from the cable box and, and spend a ton of money on the streaming service, the way Disney is finally doing. Um, so I, I don't know. I think cable is in a hard spot, but I love the, the Disney. 
the, the Disney Plus. To me, Disney Plus is the model that all the cable companies should should endeavor to to think about. You have to go streaming. You um, have to uh, make sure that you have the most popular channels and the most popular um, movies and shows. And and you probably have to innovate uh, within the technology. And and that's probably why Roku is killing it right now. Um, if I were one of the cable companies, I'd probably buy Roku. That stock is, I mean, it's been a monster, so it's hard for me to jump on board now. Um, but that, that company continues to be wedged between every one of the media companies and from the ad side that's a wonderful user interface. And, and why Comcast or Charter or Spectrum or any of those guys couldn't have figured that out is amazing to me. They clearly were just asleep at the switch with their, with their, you know, their monthly their monthly subscribers and just, you know, didn't innovate because they felt like the moat was pretty high. And that's clearly not true. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think that's a good way to end it just on the forward thinking and ability to disrupt yourself. I think that's such a great lesson. So just want to thank you for your time, Eric. It's been a blast. Yeah, thank you very much, Ryan. The only thing could I just add, if you do want to get some more information on each one of these brands, I created a website. It's globalbrandsmatter.com. And, you know, if you go to the brands tab, I write about each one of these companies, every quarterly earnings, I'll update that. So it's a great site for people to kind of follow along with, with, uh, with what our views are and, um, and, you know, kind of follow along as we go through the process of relevancy. And I'll continue to write more and more about the, the relevancy scoring system and, and break it out for people using examples within the, the brand's 200 index. Definitely. And we'll link to that in the show notes for sure. Awesome, Ryan. Great, to, great to, to talk to you today. Thanks for your time. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that... Have a fantastic day.